just like that, looks like we're ready to go. <laughs> How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, man. Good to see you. We're, uh, we're what, near the end of February? We're about a month after shot, and usually it takes about that long to uh, do all the follow-ups and the catch-ups, and, and this year is no different. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a good, it's a good late February. Get ready for the Personal Fence Network training tour to start next month. Uh, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, yeah. Uh, just, like you said, yeah, just playing the catch-up game and all that kind of fun stuff after shot and, uh, you know, getting some of these podcasts rolling and stuff. Uh, let's do a quick introduction here for those of you that don't know who my guest is today, which is uh, Rob Pincus. Now, Rob, uh, you're the, uh, like, head of training or head of director for ICE Training, correct? Yeah. Um, on top of that, you also have the PDN Network, so the Personal Defense Network. Uh, and then you just recently broke into oh it's not it's not recent for you but for everyone else it's pretty recent of breaking into the firearms manufacturing game with avidity arms yeah. so well, so uh is there anything i missed or that you need to elaborate on no i think i think that's it yeah so avidity arms um we, we I, I let's say this we just recently broke into the firearms retailing and distribution and actually selling guns game it's taken us a long time through the manufacturing process to get here yeah so that's kind now, of a new new thing. So explain to some of the people because I mean I think a lot of people when they when they think about firearms and development and R and D and like I think some of these people might maybe think like oh that's like why why is it taking so long like it should have been like a two three year process maybe and 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 like with us for like the five point it was like a six seven year process to try and get this gun out the door. I was, so I was going to mention that I just read um, an article yesterday or day before that said. Um, eight years development, like eight years for the idea and five, a little over five years, actual physical development for the 5.0. And yeah. I was like, oh, put, make, maybe make that louder. Like I was share, I shared the article around. Cause I, first of all, it's, it's, I'm really anxious to shoot one. It's an, it's an interesting gun, right? And you don't really see, honestly, like that many interesting guns, right? I think like, even if you like, we'll talk about the PD-10 mechanically, I don't know if it's super interesting. Maybe it's, I hope it's interesting that like, it came from an instructor that it came that it's purpose built for defense. Like there, are, I think there are interesting things about it, but mechanically that five Oh is, is interesting. And I'm, I'm anxious to get my hands on it. Right. But the uh, process of development that resonated, right? Yeah. We talked about this, maybe it could be done eight years ago and then it took us, you know, five plus years to get it to market. That's probably about right. And I don't think most of the difference with me is I told everybody I was doing it without like anything, like, without a gun company, without an office, without a CNC, we didn't even have a logo. Like when I, hey, we're, th I'm gonna do this and we're gonna do this. And who's we? Well, it's Vividity Arms, just go with it. <laughs> and yeah. then uh, we got excited about maybe after about three or four years thinking we were about to turn a corner and, and definitely like prematurely, it'll be ready this year at, at a SHOT Show. And of course that year went by and then uh, the other thing I can say is that it wasn't, it's not like I've been sitting in this room, you know, like, like whittling, uh, trying to get this right. You know, like there, it wasn't eight or nine years of constant labor. It was like, it's a personal defense network, IC training company, uh, TV shows, books. Uh, I got married and divorced. I've got a seven-year-old daughter that's younger than this project. You know, it's like, there's all kinds of stuff. My buddy, uh, my primary business partner actually got bought out of his primary business that was going to be part of this project um, that was actually bankrolling some of the early part of the project and they were going to handle sales and distribution in the gun community. So that company basically dissolved. So all these things happened. Uh, there was a little pandemic thing that shut, shut some stuff down and made raw material sourcing a problem. So when, when yes, did that happen? It was, when did that it, happen? Was, it was way back. Was, oh, okay. you remember, you remember I, this part? You remember this? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I forgot yeah. because of the oxygen deprivation. That was, that was the one. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah. So, so yes, eight to 10 years. Like the idea was the spring of 2013. And it was, the, it was when everybody was selling an AR, right? All of a sudden, there are AR companies popping up like everywhere, literally, because it was after Sandy Hook. I think our, our community was as worried as I've ever seen it, that there really was going to be some draconian, you know, forever assault weapon ban confiscation, whatever. Everybody was selling everything they could get to market and everybody was bringing everything they could bring to market. And obviously one of the fun, fast, easy spin-ups, if you have a CNC machine is well, let's make ARs. And I don't know, 40, 50 AR companies sprung up that year and like three of them survived, but 
we were all sitting around at, at Ewa, uh, Euro shot, you know, European version of shot show. And there were, there were five or six of us, you know, maybe a couple beers drinks in said, we should start a company. We should start a good company. And then that quickly became like, well, it'd be dumb to just do more ARs. If we were really going to do a gun company, what would it be? And over the next year, a couple people joined that conversation. A bunch of people fell out of that conversation. And, uh, by 2014, I was dead. I was in my mind is like, okay, cool. I'm developing a gun and bringing it to market. And then over the last, you know, maybe over the next five years that all settled into an actual business plan and the design was done pretty quick. And then, uh, last year, this time last year, uh, 2022 partnered up with, uh, a guy named Joe Worley who had done a little bit of business, a little bit of manufacturing of parts and pieces for, some people in the gun community, he helped a friend of mine essentially uh, bring his gun to market, but just as a, as a manufacturing vendor. Then he decided he might want to actually get more into the industry and bring something in-house. And the partnership was perfect because I had zero manufacturing capability, but, but I think a really good design and, and some marketing and promotion and, and that kind of stuff, the, the training business, being able to get it to market. But I needed to have a physical thing at a reasonable price that could be reliably manufactured and delivered. And that's what he and his family, you know, he's got a, uh, he's a second generation owner of a machine shop where they do everything from EDM, stamping, tool and die work, and they're doing it all in house. So now all of our metal stuff, you know, we buy some springs or whatever is done under one roof. So in this last year, getting up to SHOT Show 2023, we had more physical progress in the actual end product uh, than we did the preceding three or four years. And, and that's how we get to come to market. Um, we actually just shipped the first guns to retail last week. And as far as I know, um, I think today, um, it's, it's Tuesday. I don't know when people are going to get to hear this, but today may be the day that the first gun is sold, like just over the retail counter. Oh, just kind of cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on hitting that milestone. That's uh, that's a big one for sure, I can imagine. Um, and you bring up a really interesting point there, because I've actually even never really thought about that until you said it, it was the idea like, Sometimes, uh, even when you have a good plan or you have a, you know, you got your whole plan set up and we all know that sometimes the easiest way to make God laugh is to tell him you have a plan because he's like, right. oh yeah, you think so? And then, like you said, people leave, people join, companies dispersed, companies are born. Um, and, and that all comes into, I mean, yeah, you could literally be talking to someone about developing a part and the next thing you know, someone made a stupid decision. Now that company goes down and all the work that you had associated with that company goes away. And so now you almost have to not start from scratch, but you do have to start or another company has to start from scratch. Well, that's our magazine. I mean, this gun, when I, when I wanted to bring it to market, one of the things I talked to a couple of engineers who, you know, people who involved really in the, not like a napkin sketch or like the, cause I don't like measure things, right? I don't do CAD. I mean, I do now that's like, I do a little CAD now, but I certainly didn't in 2013, 14. So me saying, you know, I want the grip to be kind of swoopy, you know, underneath of a deep tang doesn't mean anything. So when you sit down with an engineer, like, well, maybe, you know, a little bit XD-ish and a little bit Steyr M-ish, but all, but skinny, thin, what do you want? Like, like this, like that, how much, how many thousands? I don't, I don't know thousands, like still to this day. I like, I, I'll, it's about, I don't know, like a 10th of a millimeter. I say that to the engineers and they look at me like, that doesn't mean anything. And I'm, and I'm like, well, guess what? Six thousands doesn't mean anything to me either. They're like, well, it's like a hair. Like, like a Mediterranean hair or like a Scandinavian. <laughs> and then they look, then they just walk out of the room. So, so these, guys, but the magazine, we, one of the things I got was, well, you have to design the gun and the magazine for any kind of, because they have to work together and it can yep. be as much work to do one or the other. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg, right? So I, the, the idea was, well, what if we came up with a design around an existing magazine that wasn't like, you know, proprietary or rare or whatever. So I was like, well, okay, skinny, nine millimeter, 10 rounds. There's 10 round 1911 bags. Why don't we just go around that? Then it became, okay, well, which one is the best or which one do we want to go with? And then without fairly to say, without doing any, what I would say, due diligence, the, uh, the guy who was doing the original engineering drawings came in and said, well, it seems like the Chip McCormick 10 round mag is the way to go. It's the, but reliable, it's skinny, it's like the best one. Okay, and I call a couple guys I know, and Latham was one of the guys that really know like 1911 9 millimeter stuff. And it, oh yeah, that's a great Mac. Cool. 
All right, let's do that. Well, guess what company doesn't exist anymore? And guess what product was dis was discontinued during that last eight years, right? <laughs> there is no more Chip McCormick 10 millimeter mag. They, Wilson, you know, had it and Wilson said, nope, we have our own 10 millimeter mag. We don't need that one. And uh, we, we really did go back to not quite scratch, but what we have now, we do our own proprietary magazine design, but it's patterned off of that magazine. And that's why we say like, not all 10, not, not all 10 round nine millimeter magazines are safe to just buy and know you're going to have hundred percent liability because they are finicky, you know? Right, right, absolutely. Right, I mean, and I think too. I mean, yeah, people don't realize. I mean, you can have, let's say, like AR fifteen magazine, for example. Right, you've got you've got metal ones, you've got polymer ones, you've got all these companies that make metal ones. We got all these companies that make polymer ones, and yet some just don't work as well yeah. as others. And and there's there is some science behind it, whether or not it's the design of the follower or what kind of spring they're using or what the internal, you know. Like it's, it should be easy enough to copy and paste, except that it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. It's, and you know, you get tolerances issue, you get tolerance issues where, um, a mag will work, but it won't drop free. Right. Or something like that. So it's like, you know what, that's one of the reasons, honestly, I wanted to go with the metal magazines because there's less issue with tolerances and you get, um, a slimmer gun. But of course, the mm -hmm. other thing that's happened in, in the industry or in the, in the gun community, let's say over this past, uh, decade is the stagger stack revolution right so all of a sudden you know um, like so for example i didn't carry this gun like th this this i didn't carry this gun ever well that's not true i carried it a couple days ago this is actually production gun number one so this is pd 10 0001 first okay. gun to leave the factory first gun to leave the office obviously i wanted it for myself so i've got that gun the gun that i have been carrying um, Michael Bain actually has this week. So, so, because I got this one now, so I gave him, he's here in Colorado too. So I, he has that one for his review and he's been, been testing it out and doing stuff. So before that, I was carrying a Glock 48 with shield mags. And that okay. was until January 1st of this year. Cause I always said, you know, we can maybe, I don't know how deep you want to go into the sort of the emotional responsibility side of bringing a gun into the world. But, but part of my position was I wasn't going to carry it until, you know, for the sake of the company, just imagine, you know, I've carried guns a long time, right? Worked in law enforcement, all this executive protection, whatever. I've never had to shoot anybody. That's good, right? Mm -hmm. The day yeah, I have to good. shoot somebody, it's like with a prototype gun that doesn't, that doesn't have any general liability insurance. Their company doesn't really exist or it <laughs> exists kind of in a partnership floating vague way, but I have a prototype that was hand filed. No, how about I don't carry that gun? I'm going to stick with the, you know, the Glock or the XDS four inch or whatever. So yeah. I wasn't carrying these until it was real. And it, the January 1st was the day the insurance went into effect. We did all the drop, the drop testing with the final people are like, how come it took you eight years, nine years to get drop testing done? Well, if you drop test it without the actual final parts, the actual final coatings, the actual final springs, the actual final edges and all the details, you're not testing the thing you're going to sell. So you end up, right. why bother doing it? You end up in court saying, well, no, we didn't really test that. <laughs> we we yep, tested yep. it with a different coating or we tested it with a different finish. So, you have to wait till the very end. So we did all that in December and that meant the insurance went in January 1st. So I started carrying the gun on January 1st of this year. And it, it just changes the mindset for me um, a lot. Like all of a sudden it was way more real. And we were, we were really putting this gun into people's hands and they were really going to be carrying it potentially to defend themselves or defend their family. You know, all the things that we talk about all the time. Anyway, when, you look at the stagger stack revolution, what happened was people could have a gun that was relatively small, like the Glock 48, and take it with the shield bags from a 10 round to a 15 round. And it was obviously like the 365 that started all that. And mm -hmm. in a similar range of size came out with, you know, double digit capacity in the mag. So people see this gun and they say, okay, well, Rob, you said it was a 10 round gun. And that was before the Glock 48 and then the Glock 48 came out and it was a 10 round gun. And you said, no, nah, it's cool that Glock's doing it because now they kind of normalize this idea of a skinny single stack gun being viable for carry. And then SIG comes out and boom, changes things. And now you've got the Hellcat, you've got the shield mags for the Glock, everything's stagger stack. So surely you're going to stagger stack, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not. My gun's 0.8, man. Like, like there's no room mm. for stagger stack. We, st we wanted the gun to be as thin as possible. 
around a skinny mag. There, it's not a polymer mag. It's not, there's no extra room here. This gun can't even be made for 40 caliber, right? Like I knew 10 years ago, I didn't want it to be in 40 cal. So the slide won't accept a 40 cal. We can't, it's, we don't have enough meat on the bones here to put, to make it 40 cal. So it's a nine millimeter. It's a single stack. It's 10 plus one. The only thing that might change that is some of this new flat spring technology. We might be able to actually go flatter vertically and still have the strength we need at the top to, to put 11 rounds in with a, with a next gen mag. But I was also the guy 10 years ago that was cutting Glock 19s down to take Glock 26 mags. So I was carrying what we call the Glock 26 L. Right. So I'm fine with 10 plus one. I've been fine with 10 plus one for a long time. And it doesn't matter that other gun companies have small guns that hold more nine millimeter rounds. Great. If that's what you're looking for, um, carries all a compromise. And, and this, I think, is the best combination of compromises for for carrying and shooting, because we also know a lot of people don't shoot that 365 in a 400, 500 round class. They shoot their 320, but they carry the 365. And there's a reason that that gun just isn't as shootable in its configuration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, you know, it's funny, too, because uh, like when I talk to people about firearms and even when I talk to them even about training, you know, like trigger pull, grip, stance, blah, 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 uh, to, to have this mindset of like, well, look, this is this is the one way that you should do it. No, no, because uh, and, and even over time, things can change. Right. Because when I started shooting, like I was taught things when I when I was a beginner that as a, a higher level shooter now is in my mind, technically incorrect. However, at the time, it did help me. So does that mean it's incorrect then if it did help me? No, it just means that uh, something about that process worked well with me. I understood it. it. I was able to translate results from it. And then as I grew, that became an outdated or outmoded process, and I transitioned over to a new one. And uh, I think firearms are the same too. Like I sometimes... You, you know, when I started off, 40 Smith & Wesson was the hot caliber that everyone wanted to shoot. FBI was using it in their guns and blah, blah, blah. Sure. So competition world. So, And now as we progressed more and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's like 9mm has come back and said like, oh, you know what? On second thought, it's not about size. It's really about shot placement. You know, you can drop something with a 9 a lot faster in the right spot than you can with a 40 in the wrong spot. Um, so to try and come up with the perfect gun that everyone's going to love going to be impossible someone's always going to have something to complain about right because uh, if you if you make your gun capable of holding more rounds but you have to make it wider now all of a sudden people's argument is like well i liked it because it was skinny you know? right so so yeah, yeah. i mean it's, it's kind of like you got you got to find what if you've got a specific purpose behind the design of the firearm and and that's and you can stay true to that and that's your mission i think that that says a lot because there are going to be people that absolutely love it and there's all going to be people that also absolutely hate it. But the good thing is, is, well, they can go buy another gun if they want. <laughs> You're not forcing them to buy yours. And we'll, and we'll, we'll make more than one gun, right? I mean, I mean, like, like, look at Rock Island, right? Who who saw the 5.0 coming, like, in any way? And and now it's here. So it's different than anything that's been done before, right? And mm -hmm. but that's cool. Just because... Avidity Arms launches with a single stack, four inch, 11 round gun doesn't mean that's all we'll ever make. Interestingly, I wrote an article in, in the spring of 2014 that said it was kind of a tongue in cheek. You know, I knew I was doing this and already had written down all the design criteria, kind of specs and kind of napkin sketch stuff. So I wrote an article that was kind of like, uh, do you want, you know, good luck finding the perfect carry gun uh, because it'll just be a bunch of compromises and no company's ever going to make it. And then I proceeded to list, you know, in Rob's mind, what would be the best set of compromises for the actual, for the person who actually carries like five plus days a, a week and trains, takes classes and practice. So, you know, 10, at that point, 15 years, full-time on ranges teaching, uh, tens of thousands of students, you know, now I'm over two decades doing this, they teaching, you know, full time and instructor development and programs, military law enforcement, beginners around the world, all that stuff. I have some idea of what it looks like when a human being holds a gun and, and how it works, how those things work together and the behaviors and characteristics of the people that actually carry and actually train and actually practice. So that was the outline. And I listed all the things that you know, would become the PD 10 in there. And, and just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's all about balance of compromises. And the thing about this is some people have said, okay, so you've built your perfect carry gun. No, I have, this is not Rob Pincus's perfect carry gun. And 
there would, it would be slightly different if it were built for me. You know, one of the things we, we've all said, we've all heard in this industry is we wish guns were designed by shooters instead of by engineers, you know, or marketing teams or whatever. You know, that's one of those kind of cliches you hear at, at SHOT Show or standing around the gun shop. So I think this is one better because it's not just a shooter designing a gun that he thinks would be great using his experience or his hand size or his preferences or even his application because it's different if it's, you know, handgun hunting versus, you know, bullseye shooting versus defense, whatever. This to me is the best set of compromises for like the widest group of people that might actually buy a gun for public space, defensive concealed carry. The next gun will be something else. And the next gun will be something else. Um, somebody's always going to complain. There are people out there like I could come out with like, we could, we could do like the Coke Pepsi thing, right? Like Sig has their new gun and Rob's got his new gun and we could take the logos off and just put them out there and let people shoot them. People might love the gun that Sig made until they, you know, find out Sig made it and they hate Sig because of something that happened in, you know, 1987, or they hate me because of something I said in 2007, and they're going to flip their minds and decide they hate the gun because of the personality or the brand. That's always going to be there. Um, yep. One of the things that we get, like on PD-10, is, well, there's no front serrations. Every, you, know, you got to put front serrations on there. I use front serrations. Somebody else uses front serrations. Why aren't there any front serrations on there? Well, I don't like guys manipulating the gun up by the muzzle, right? Particularly in a defensive context. Like I realized like in the olden days, we had giant optics or some thing back here. There was a reason to come up here and start messing with the gun, but I don't like people to mess with the gun up there. So especially for the average concealed carry person and the techniques and the, and the, the way that they're going to be using and carrying the gun, I don't want to put front serrations up there because I don't want to encourage that behavior from the, the target group for this gun. I get that somebody's not going to buy this. Somebody's going to not buy this gun because it doesn't have front serrations. Okay. And I also get that in a five inch slide version of this, that might be more suited to like competition or target shooting environment. We might very well put front serrations on that gun because that's a different thing. And as a company, that's really important to, to be, to let people hear. It's not like it's a mistake. It's not like I didn't know some people like front serrations and we just left it off. Like it's a conscious design decision to not have front serrations on this just as much as it's a conscious design decision to not have a manual thumb operated safety on this gun, right? We could make the trigger lighter and shorter and go with a different design and put that on there. But I don't think it's good in a des gun designed for defensive carry, so it's not going to have it. Um, but some people have noticed that we have relatively thick uh, engraving of the logo on both sides. So if you really want to get some traction there in an emergency, you could, you could use the logo as a front front serration. Oh yeah. Well, there you go. Sometimes you just got to get creative and, uh, and, and it's funny too. Cause like <clears throat> that probably wasn't your conscious effort to be like, Oh, let's make sure the logo is nice and deep so that, you know, you can get traction. But someone found that as a, like, they like, Oh, well, you know, like, I, I like that it's deep so that if I need to, like, they found the solution they were looking for, even though you never designed it that way. On, on, on the, 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 on, on you, I will tell you, here's the thing on Rock Island. I will tell you, this is actually true. Somebody said that. And then we made it deeper because it, well, right. it wasn't as deep as it is now. Somebody said that. And it was like, wait a minute, go look. Yeah, we could. And that way. And then, and cause, because here's the deal. In defense world, every once in a while, somebody will throw that flag like, okay, Rob, but what if there was a situation where somebody needed that feature to save their lives? And it's like, I don't know how you needed a manual safety to save your life. Like, I'm not, not buying it, right? But with the front serrations, it's almost like, okay, so your cousin comes over flew in from out of town. They lost his luggage. He needs a carry gun. He's a front serration manipulation guy. You let him borrow the PD 10. Something happens, something happens, something happens. He goes to manipulate the gun from the front, slides off it and ISIS kills him. Oh man, your cousin died. Cause I didn't have front serrations. Okay. 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 We'll make the logo a little deeper. Now I feel like we've covered that. We checked that box. We're good. I don't want okay. that dude's cousin to die. Right. Well, and there you go. But again, like that was the thing, though, is like someone someone found a use for something that you had like, oh, OK, that was a happy accident by design in yeah. a way. But and the fact that you capitalized on it is good, too, because because I think that's one of the other things that um, 
uh, I think firearms manufacturers in whole sometimes can forget some is the idea like, well, no, that person said it was fine. Well, no, no, like if if someone you know if someone complains about something, okay, fine, maybe it's just that. If multiple people say, hey, here's something that we ought to take a look at, then. It, it, have an open mind. Don't let your ego get in check and be like, no, it's fine the way it is. You know, there's, yeah, there's a difference between somebody points out a, a flaw or an oversight or a new innovation, right? Like I, hmm. like I do think at some point Glock has to wake up and be like, all right, that metal magazine shield arms thing was a good idea. Right. And just like make a 15 round magazine for 48. Like what? But they won't because it's Glock. But but if it were my company, I'd have done, like 15 minutes later, I'd have either done a licensing agreement or said, yeah, wow, wish I had thought of that and gone out and find a way to make metal magazines for my gun that has plastic magazines so it can be way better. Right. Uh, we so here's the thing, you know, I'm involved in like gun making, right? Like I run the gun makers match um, private gun making to encourage people to make their own guns uh, without needing the regulation or government involvement. And it's, and it's really more of a creative hobby, I think, for most people. It's not about, I have a gun without a serial number, but I'm really big on encouraging that kind of stuff, right? If people want to, it's another aspect of the firearms world. It's fun. It's not defense-oriented. It's not real work. So I run the Gun Makers Match. Uh, we're going to have our, our third annual one um, in Western Pennsylvania on April 22nd. People come in from all over the country. It's, it's a good time. So I've gotten close with, uh, let's say, the gun-making community, the private gun-making community, and, and especially on the 3D printing side. So we're releasing a 3D print file uh, by the probably by the end of the month, or probably next week it'll come out, uh, and we're going to be selling parts kits. So people that have 3D printers that like to print their guns, um, there's a difference in tolerances between an injection molded process and what the 3D printers can do. So... We had to change some of the geometry on the inside. I had a great, I didn't do it. I'm not that good. I had uh, some d development guys who were really good in the 3D printing gun world um, work on some prototyping. And we got to a, a third version that on a bunch of different kinds of printers with several different uh, printers around the country, they found uh, kind of what the changes needed to be. And so we're going to be selling um, through JSD Supply the parts kits, all the metal stuff that you need, and the file is going to be out there for free um, through through DefCAD. And people can download the file, print their own frame, they can pick their own color. I mean, like my logo is on the back of the PD-10, obviously. If they wanted to change that to their initials or, you know, whatever, they can do all the things that 3D printers do with a slight customization to the frame. As long as the internal geometry is the same, it'll take all the parts and they'll be able to have their own PD-10 uh, that they made, right? Which is, which I think is super cool. But what I've said is inevitably somebody in the 3d printing community is going to do something as a change that I'm going to say as a company, wow, that's awesome. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not just going to steal it. Like I'm going to, I don't I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be a million dollars, but maybe it'll be a thousand dollars. Maybe it'll be, you know, half a percent royalty. If it's really cool to a gun that we come out with later, like there's going to be innovation that comes from the gun making community that I can't wait to capitalize on and, and embrace and hopefully make that person some money or as a gun designer, get them some credit, you know, Hey, they came up with this evolution and it's cool and we're going to use it. So I think that's, that's a big part of the future of, of collaboration between gun makers and, and the industry, right? Beretta technically gets credit for being the first gun company to embrace the 3d printing community in a way. Um, they came out with a shotgun that has a side plate, that they put the, the dimensions on the internet and say, hey, anybody, if you buy this gun, we intentionally put a place on the gun where you can 3D print your own side plate uh, and, and decorate the gun. And sort of instead of getting, you know, spending a bunch of money on engraving, print out that, that you know, bird dog scene with the duck coming mm. back from the marsh or whatever and put it on the side of your gun. So they technically get credit for being the first major manufacturer to embrace in one way or another, but we're the first manufacturer that's putting our current generation frame out there in the world and saying, hey, guys, here it is. If you want to make guns, we hope you buy a PD-10, too. Meanwhile, you can buy a parts kit and make your own. And that is not something that you see in the firearms world. I mean, uh, especially right now with, with things being as, as hectic and tight financially as it is. I mean, the, the idea of someone being like, wait, you know, he's just going to put his gun out there for free and just sell parts kit? Like, what is he thinking? That's suicide. But, um, <clears throat> you know, financially, that, that just doesn't make sense. But in reality, I guess, as we said, like, if you... If you if you have a belief and you have something that you you're passionate about and you want to share and spread, I mean, like I said, it's it's not just about 
oh, now I have a gun, right? Like we, we think that media kind of portrays it like we're all just gun loving nuts. And that's all about, it's all about just the gun. But the fact is it's about, uh, I mean, I, I have some of my best, my best core memories now as an adult have been from when I first got into shooting and the, the laughs and times I had with friends that had nothing to do with the gun being in my hand. I was just in the environment of the gun range. So there's, there's so much more to being a gun owner than just now I have a gun and the 3d printing world. Like you said, like, I, I love the idea. Yeah. But if someone wants to change the grip and make it some cool, you know, Oh, I, I'm a Deadpool fan. So I'm going to make a version that has yeah. the Deadpool logo all over it or, you know, whatever, like they, they get to, throw some of their creative juices out there. And, uh, I mean, like I said, if, if I, I don't know, like, I, you know, my thought process with the 3d printing thing is it, it's out there and now it can't be stopped. You can't take it away. Yeah. The technology is no, out there. People have learned how to make it. So the, the fact that you're trying so desperately maybe to hold back on it instead of trying to find some way to one capitalize on it and then two make it uh, more readily available so that it becomes a normal. And it's like, you're not the only person. Bad people are going to do bad things, but yeah. good people are also also going to be doing good things. And sometimes good people do bad things, and sometimes bad people do good things. But the fact of the matter is, I think, you know, uh, it's just like in the anything out there. You can have 10 great experiences, and that's what you expect. But you have one terrible experience, and that's going to be the one that sticks out. You're going to completely forget about the 10, right? And that's what happens. We've got so many good people in the world that that's help people change flat tires that, you know, just help people pay for their groceries because they were a little short. So many of those stories happen every single day. But the one story of a person being a jackass is the one that's going to be highlighted and show that humanity is, is lost forever because of this one person's decision or what it's, it's very interesting. So the 3d print world, like you said, I, I, I applaud you for, for being someone that'd be able to, to throw it out there and just say like, look, here's, here's a way to, to help be creative with the product that you love, uh, that, that means something to you and to encourage people to just be safe with it. I mean, obviously have fun, but ultimately you gotta be safe. Yeah. Like, so, like I said, somebody could buy the gun and 3d scan this, right. Uh, they can then put, but this exact frame, if you 3d scan it, the geometry isn't going at the level that you're going to print it at, let's say the resolution that the printers work, it won't take the parts. So now you end up, you're going to be drilling or filing or doing something. You're going to make some random changes in an, in an, in an isolation chamber, as opposed to in a development group. And I don't know that it would be hard to figure out how you could really make it dangerous, but it's not going to be functional, right? Like if you, if you buy one of our slides, like obviously the explosion is still happening inside of a regular chamber and a regular barrel with a slide, but if it doesn't link up right, and if the, the, the geometry isn't right on the inside, it's not going to be fun. And yeah, theoretically it could become dangerous. So by putting the frame out there in a way that's optimized for the current generation of 3d printers and putting out the, the manual and the guide, the build guide, because there's, layer heights and angles and how do you, do you want it to print upside down or next, you know, sideways or angled, how, giving the 3D printers the guidance from our development team and saying, if you want to build this gun, we want you to do it, A, easily, you know, obviously safely. We want you to enjoy it. Um, you still have to buy the parts kit from us. So it's not, we're not like truly losing money. We obviously most of the profit, I think everybody in the community knows if you have a polymer gun, most of the profits coming out of the, the polymer. But on the other side of this, Let's think about that. Like when I go to sell this, right, I've got a, it's regulated. I've got to have the serial number on it. It's got to pass through at least a, a retailer to do the background check and all that. It probably is going to go through a distributor, maybe a wholesaler, then a regional, then, then a retailer. There's a lot of money tied up in, the, in keeping track of where this number goes, right? Just the processes of selling a gun, as we all know, are expensive. Plus there's the excise tax. So I don't have, on the metal parts, I don't have any of that. So, so I, I want to be clear, like, I'm not, it's not a charity act. I'm not giving the parts away, right? Like they, and nobody else is making parts for the Avidity Arms PD-10. The profit margin isn't the same, but also the work is way less. I can ship these metal mm. parts anywhere in the, in the world, really, but particularly anywhere in the U.S. And anybody can sell them at retail without the background check, without the paperwork, without it having to be locked up at night. We can sell them across the table at gun shows or whatever we want to do with those. And there's no, there's nothing nefarious about it. We're not like being sneaky about it. We're just being very open about it. And again, I think giving the, the parameters of how it should be printed and giving them a special file that is exactly for the, the resolution of the current generation of 3D printers out there 
um, really changes the game. So it's not just like, we don't care if you want to knock this off. We're saying, we know you're going to do it anyway. We want you to do it safely. Uh, we want you to have fun with it. And, and yeah, you know, change the angle of the grip. If it fits your hand better, have a good time with it. And I do think we're about to hit and uh, within the next few years, 3d printers are going to be like the, the home computer of the eighties, you know, or even like the microwave oven. Like think about it. Like our grandmothers would never have dreamed of making a meal in a microwave oven, right? Our moms were probably a little resistant to it. Like, okay, we'll do mac and cheese, but I'm not making the Thanksgiving casserole in a, in a microwave oven, right? And now it's, okay. if you don't even go into a house, it doesn't have some home, like, I mean, there, I'm sure there are people out there that don't have regular ovens now. They only have microwave ovens or an air fryer, right? Um, we all have computers. We're all carrying around computers in our you know pockets on our phones that are more powerful than anything that was out there in the 80s, but it was a big deal when, the home computer revolution started happening, right? I think we're, we're almost there with, with 3D printing. There's some companies out there that for under two grand, you can buy a 3D printer that you basically open the box and, and you you know get it together with your computer one way or another and it magically starts printing stuff and it's pretty simple. It's changed a lot. You can go buy a $200 printer that you kind of put it your, together yourself and you gotta kind of be a little bit of a technical nerd to get it working, but for 1500, you can get plug and play. And I think when that gets under a thousand, boom, it's wide open. So I'm hoping that there's some people out there who, you know, buy a PD 10, they've been watching the company, they watch, they hear about this 3D printing thing. And maybe next year they buy their first 3D printer just so that they can strip the metal off of the PD 10 they bought, the traditionally manufactured one, and they print out their own frame in their own color. And it's, it's fun for them. And they get into the gun making hobby because Avidity Arms is making it easy. Uh, that's yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I can I just say too, you know, when I was a kid, I was told I wasn't going to just walk around with a calculator in my pocket. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Bull crap. Okay. So right. parents, be careful what you tell your kids they're not going to have in the future because we have no freaking clue, right? Like, yeah. Oh, oh well, you need, you need a low, like, let's be honest. You need to know how to drive a manual stick car. No, you don't. It's cool to have, but I'm sure there's oh, going to yeah. be a point where. There's not even going to be gears in cars anymore. They're just going to go and, you know, stuff I'll like tell you, that. It's but... funny. I've, like, if I sell a lot of PD-10s, like, I really want – in my brain, I'm thinking, you know, the last the, – this is really the last generation of manual vehicles out there, performance vehicles, right? I mean, you can't right. even get – like, BMW M5 doesn't even come in a manual anymore, right? So, like, you got the Cadillac CTSV, Blackwing, and a couple other cars out there that are still – manual transmission high-end cars not like utility trucks or whatever and I, i'm like oh, i should get one of those before everything's electric I'm, I'm like i know eventually i'll have an electric car if i live you know long enough i don't want one really right even though the performance and some of the aspects of performance are kind of neat um but i would love to have like it's a classic manual transmission now you reminded me of that i gotta put that on the board somewhere well, you know, and, and, you know, the electric car thing that's going on, like, don't get me wrong. I, I get it. I do. But at the same time, I, I see what happens in places like California and Texas with their power grids and it not being able to function because everyone's trying to run their air conditioner or their heater. You're yeah. telling me that on top of that, I also have to fuel the vehicle that I'm going to use to go get groceries and, and go to my job and maybe potentially leave in the event of an emergency. Like, I don't know, man. The electric, it, it's its a great idea, but until we find a better way to to get some power down on the ground that we can we can actually utilize without having to do rolling blackouts because there's a shortage. Like, I, I'm sorry, California already just confuses me. Like, they're, they're having the worst drought ever. They have no water, and they live next to the fucking ocean. Explain to me how that's a problem. Like, I get it. Like, there's salt in that water, but there's there's way to get rid of salt. They, to they do can't, it, right. you know. No, but instead, yeah, so I'm here in Colorado, <laughs> and I, I've got buddies with, like, land in western Colorado that aren't, that like, they're restricted. They have running water through their property. They're restricted on how they can use the running water on their property because eventually that water flows into the water table in California. Like, it, like that's not how, how the earth works, man. Like, go upstream. Like, don't, you can't be down there all working, <laughs> but don't whine about it. It's California. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, gotta gotta love it. All right, now, um, so we obviously we talked a lot about the PD10 for you, and uh, and there's one thing that I think we, I want to discuss with you about that gun, and that's because we we sat down and discussed it at Shot Show, yeah. um, and it's something that I think, you know, if if the if the everyday average gun owner picked up the PD10, 
racked the slide and started to pull the trigger, I know what they would think and their their thought process would go, "Wow, that's a that's a disgusting trigger." But after you told me that's harsh. what okay, but, well, no, no, but but after, after what you told because of what they're used to, what the, sure. everything else in the market is designed a certain way as far as striker fires go. Now you come up with this new design and it's different and if you're not expecting it and you don't know what the purpose of it is, it's not going to make sense to you. But because I had a discussion with you prior to me picking up the gun and feeling the trigger, I completely and utterly got what you were saying and it made sense as I was pulling the trigger of knowing what the feel was and your mindset behind designing it that way. So let's talk a little bit about the trigger and, and more importantly, the, the mindset of why you designed it the way you did, because I think that's very important. Uh, you know, we've got that breakdown of the traditional striker fire having that, that wall of, uh, the wall of resistance that we have to overcome to get the shot to break. And you went a different route. And I think that's, that's pretty important from a shooter's mindset to, to understand why you wanted to get rid of that wall. So talk a little bit about that. It is. I, and I think it's a, it's a deep seated part of the gun community's psychology about, you know, the oppression and the resistance and the trigger having a wall of resistance that we have to overcome that makes us feel good deep down in our soul. But engineering wise and shooting wise, it's stupid. So, so it's like, okay, I like you got your wall and you feel like you've overcome it and you've learned to turn your trigger into a two part press, right? Which no, like when, I was learning to shoot on double action revolvers or even like during the DASA era, right? Like third generation Smiths, the SIG P226 series, all that stuff, right? It, nobody, I, I'm unaware of anybody really saying, hey, it's a really good idea for you to pull the trigger most of the way back and then start aiming. Like hold it there, just get everything right and then break the shot. But that's sort of how people are taught to shoot striker fired guns. You know, if you really break it down, I mean, it may not be the verbiage, but that's sort of what we tell people is, yeah, you want to get to that wall and then break the yeah, shot. Prep, and what I see students trigger. do, yeah, prep the trigger. And what I see students do is just that. I'll say, okay, I'll do a demonstration in class where I say, I'm going to take a three second shot. And I have a student, they all get kind of parallel with the gun. And I tell them, watch my trigger finger. And with a normal striker fired gun, and I'm going to take a three second shot and I'll pick one student. I'll say, I want you to say, we use the up as a command. So I'll say, say up, and then just, I'll take a three second shot. So they say up and I will do nothing for about two and a half seconds. And then I'll smash the trick, like from full forward. And then say, okay, let's do it again. Watch the trigger finger. They'll say up and I'll prep the trigger as soon as they say up. And then I'll sit there for like two seconds and then I'll smash the trigger. And then the third one, okay, everybody watch, everybody's got that, okay, watch this, they'll say up, and then I'll take as much as I can, take about three seconds with constant motion to go from front to rear and fire the shot. And I'll, okay, say, now I'll say, okay, so what was the difference? What did you guys see? And more or less, they'll get it. And I'll say, okay, which one of those was a three-second shot? And somebody will be like, well, one of them was about two and a half seconds. You know, okay, which one of them, which one of those shots was about a three second shot. And they kind of eventually it settles to, well, all of them were because he gave the command and about three seconds later, the shot went off. So I was only shooting for three seconds on the last one, right? I was just waiting for two and a half seconds, like aiming or whatever I was doing in two and a half, for two and a half seconds. And then with a quarter second or half a second, whatever, I smashed the trigger. On the second one, I got the trigger ready and then I did nothing for another two seconds, and then I shot. Only on the last one was I actually shooting for three seconds. Like the process of shooting is the whole thing. So I was, I was watching my sights, maintaining my sight picture while I gave a smooth, long, slow trigger press. So the idea is I see a lot of people drive the gun out, aim, wait, try to like control their breathing, do all this weird stuff that, that I think is never gonna show up in the middle of a defensive shooting moment and then break the shot when everything is theoretically perfect. And if you get really good at it, if you put a lot of time, effort, and energy into it, you can turn your striker-fired gun essentially into like a heavy single-action trigger pull and learn to break that shot from the prep without disturbing your sight alignment sight picture, but not as well under stress and not as well in a dynamic situation and almost never with a target for not, I'm not talking about world-class plaque winners. I'm talking about like the people that come to classes and carry guns almost never when the target's moving, 
because you're trying to trap it and you're moving something and the thing's moving. So in, when you're shooting a static piece of paper or steel, yeah, you can make everything perfect and break the shot. But if something's moving and you think like a balloon in the air, right? Or like the, not, not like a, a swinger or a tract mover, but the way humans move. And like, I would say, but picture somebody with a knife to you, like your family member's throat backing away from you, trying to abduct them. Like that head's moving, right? And the other, and the, mm. they're moving and you got to keep your signature while pressing the trigger. That's actually way easier to do with like a smooth double action trigger than it is with something that has varying degrees of pressure and like an interruption, that wall. So what I wanted to do was recreate sort of what I always thought of as if you thought, what's a great trigger, you know, like what's a great trigger, even if it's not short and crisp, people are going to tell you things like the Colt Python, you know, or they're going to tell you like, no, the SIG, I had a SIG P226, man, that trigger was out of the box. It was, it was long, it was heavy, but it was a great trigger pull. It was smooth. It didn't have a wall. It didn't interrupt like a modern gun. So we wanted to create a trigger that was more reminiscent, I guess, or more functionally the same as a longer, smoother trigger pull, but it's only five and a half pounds, right? It's not like it's an eight pound, 12 pound double action trigger from the eighties. So it's the weight of a striker gun and it is relatively long. And just so nobody thinks like John attacked me literally on Saturday, I was in California. I brought this PD number one was out there with me and we were letting the students shoot at the end of the class. And one of the students, and he was a very, uh, before this, before the class he was in with me, he had taken a lot of training and he was definitely a, a wall shooter. He was a prep the trigger, break the shot kind of guy. And I would say, if you come to my class and you're pulling off the shots, you're hitting the little circles at, at distance under stress. Okay, cool. I'm not going to tell you to change. But this guy picked up the PD-10, started to shoot and attacked and racked. And I knew exactly what he did. <laughs> he did exactly what you, you, you talked about because he was looking for the wall he thought something was wrong with the trigger. And of course, then everybody's like, oh, Rob's new gun failed. And I'm like, well, what timeout? Describe what just happened. Well, I don't know. The trigger it wasn't, it wasn't shooting. I go, was the trigger moving? Well, yeah. Did, did it stop moving? Did you get all the way back? Did it click? Uh, well, it just didn't feel right. Now, eight other people had just shot at about 30 yards and hit a piece, maybe about 40 yards and hit a piece of steel in front of them. But he did exactly what you're talking about because he was a wall shooter. So, yeah, if somebody's used to prepping a Glock or prepping a 320, prepping a, even an XD, if they're used to taking up that slack and then shooting, this trigger is going to be different. But if I handed them a double action revolver, I don't think if they were an experienced shooter, they wouldn't freak out because there was no wall. They would pull right through and then they'd say, well, that's a really smooth trigger. Right. So it's just it's the package it comes in makes people think it's wrong. But I appreciate the opportunity to address why it is what it is. And of course, it has a crisp, you know, short reset. So I want that first shot, which is infinitely, if you have to take a high level precision shot in a defensive shooting situation, it's infinitely more likely to be the first shot, like when you start, right? It's not like you're going to defend yourself with rapid fire and then all of a sudden the guy's, you know, 30 yards away. That, that scene doesn't play out. What plays out is if you are behind cover or you're, the, you're in an active shooter situation, you're trying to take somebody out at distance. If there is a, somebody's taken, you know, hostage, you're going to do that, you know, shoot somebody in the head because your family member has been grabbed kind of thing. That's much more likely to be your first shot. So the first shot is a smooth trigger press with no wall. The follow-up shots are all normal striker fired, rapid, super short, crisp, you know, striker fired stuff. Yeah, and, what, and like I said, because I mean, it was it was just that mindset that I had the first time I picked up the gun and I actually pulled the trigger. Like, I, even though I talked to you and you had told me what to expect, as I was pulling it, my mindset was, okay, this is a striker fired gun. I should be hitting a wall here. Yep. I, there's a little bit of the okay, cause you can't you couldn't make it a perfect yeah, double action yeah, you, you, because the engineering is the engineer, right? Right. So I, I was able to still determine that there was still a little bit of a wall there, but as I'm actively pulling it for the first time, I was like. I get it. That totally makes sense. But my brain was going, this trigger feels terrible compared to a Glock or compared to a MMP or compared to an XD. But my brain was having that battle of like, no, you understand why it feels the way it does. It doesn't feel the way it looks like it's supposed to, but there's a, a reason behind it. And so, yeah, I just wanted to give and you I an opportunity. Stress, I think like, if somebody's looking at their family member with a knife to their throat and needs to shoot a guy in the face, I don't think they're worried about the trigger feel, right? I think that that should be happening in the background. The trigger press should be happening in the background of all the other information that's being processed. So 
it's kind of, it's almost like I want to get you out to the range and just shoot it. Cause I know people are going to stand in gun shops and they're going to be like, Oh, that's weird. And, and maybe not buy the gun because of it. But again, I'm trying to, to put the best product out there on the market for this group. And, and maybe some of it takes some, some education, but at the end of the day, you know, we've got an army of instructors out there teaching our programs. Um, you know, USCCA now uses the, this same program as the core. We you know, wrote the curriculum 2017, 18. So we've got hundreds of instructors teaching the DSF program under USCCA, all the ones I've certified through ICE, it lies in law enforcement, military, like it's the, the information's been out there, press through the wall. Don't stop at the wall and try to turn your trigger into a two-part thing. It's just press through the wall and learn to do that. This gun makes that way easier. And, and I hope that, you know, there'll be some other companies out there that say, well, let us take another look at this. You know, a lot of people don't know this. In the 80s, one of the ways that Glock was successful in, in getting cops to accept this plastic gun with no safety and no hammer, right, was they actually taught trigger prep and they taught the reset and some of the, as a uh, evolved version of double action, single action. So they were in some of the transition classes, that was sort of how they got buy-in. They said, okay, you're trading in a third gen Smith, you're trading in a, a SIG P226. So you're used to two types of trigger pulls. Well, the Glock, listen, did you hear that loud clicky sound? That loud clicky sound is kind of like single action and your first shot you can come in and prep it, and then you're right there at a single action shot. And that was so people were taught as a marketing tool in the late 80s, early 90s, that the Glock trigger was supposed to be shot like that. I don't think that was a design intention by any stretch. I think it made a loud clicky noise, and people capitalized on it in the uh, sales training role of, of the, the transition classes to get cops to buy in on it. And then it just sort of now it exists as, as something you're supposed to do with striker fired guns. I think if the trigger had been more like even like an XD trigger or, or like the Avidity Arms trigger, I don't think we would have had this phenomenon where people are prepping the trigger on striker fired guns. But we do. Um, and I just think we, we, we may evolve out of it, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, now you obviously do the, the PDN network, you do ice training, you do a lot of self-defense shooting, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's one topic I wanted to hit, hit with you uh, uh, because I, I've, I've got several different mindsets. So I'm always going to play devil's advocate regardless of which way you take. But here's the question is carry with one in the chamber. Do you do it or do you not? <laughs> well, I, I do it. Um, I will say this. What I say to students, and I just, I did it at concealed carry seminar uh, last weekend here in Denver, and it's very much like half the room doesn't even have a concealed carry permit. A, a third of the room didn't even have their first gun. One of those kinds of things, like a free seminar for an organization here in, in Colorado that does uh, advocacy work as well as training. So I did this seminar and one of the guys at the end of the class, he's like, I saw some videos on YouTube of, you know, some people can do that really fast. Like you really don't give up any time. So why you didn't mention empty chamber carry and i was like well that's because it's stupid <laughs> like i and, and i said you know basically if you're not ready to carry a gun that's ready to be used then you're not ready to carry a gun and that's okay but you've got to trust the gun you've got to trust yourself you got to we talked about holster you got to trust the holster the holster has to do its three jobs and all that stuff so i i the way i like it sounds extreme but literally the equivalent when you talked about the cars, I immediately thought of this, right? And then, and then, you're you're bringing up the topic. So I tell people it's the same as if you get home at night, you park your car in the garage, and you're aware that fire is a thing, and you're thinking, you know, if there was a fire right now in the garage, my gas tank could explode and take out the back half of the house. So I'm going to drain all the fuel out of my car, and I'm just going to put it over here, like store it outside in a safe fuel storage container. And then tomorrow when I get ready to drive, I'll just take the extra time, effort and energy. It's easy to do. People put gas in their car all the time. I'm just gonna put the gas in the car. And if you know I have to get my kid to the hospital in the middle of the night, I'm sure I can get enough gas into the car quickly to get the kid to the hospital before they bleed out or die, whatever the problem is. So I'm not worried about it. I don't, it's just, I'm just not comfortable having that essentially a bomb in my house overnight. So I'm going to take all the fuel out of my car and I'll just, I'll fuel it when I need it. And I keep fuel nearby. So it's okay. Like that to me, that's the equivalent of empty chamber carry. 
that's a that's a great way to parallel <laughs> i've never even thought about that yeah i see and then that's that see i love talking with people about something that's outside of competition i mean i love talk, talking to people inside competition too but i never would have thought of that can normally my answer when people say well why don't why don't you carry one of the chamber uh is is the same one you give well because it's stupid <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. like and and because I always try and explain to people, I'm like, look, if, if if things have progressed so badly that you're having to get ready to pull your gun out, I typically one of two things is very very true, and and uh, that that well, one thing is probably very very true, and it's the fact that you're behind the eight ball. You, if if you're getting ready to pull your gun out, it's because a threat has already presented itself. So. Yeah. To think that you have an extra tenth of a second, two tenths of a second to rack the gun uh, and get it back functional and operational to do what it's supposed to do, which is to protect the life of you, your family, your loved ones, your community, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't know. That's a, it's kind of like rolling a dice. Like I, depending on the scenario, right? You got the that robbery that took place. The dude, in, I think it was in Texas, that had the rubber gun, but he's walking yeah. back and forth, so he's turning his back to you. So I mean, in that situ- situation, absolutely, you probably do got time to pull your gun out, rack it, and then engage your target. But what if it's just you and them? There, there's no distraction. There's no, you know, it's it's a straight on confrontation, one on one. Man, you can try things. You can throw keys. But there's situations where, like, you don't, You all, let's face it, most defensive gun uses are psychological, right? Like, you don't actually have to shoot the person until they physically can't hurt you. You show them the gun and they run away. Or uh, And unfortunately, a lot of people miss when they use a gun defensively. They shoot at the bad guy, but the bad guy runs away. Even when you shoot the bad guy... When he put and you get bullets in him and he runs away and even you find him bled out dead behind a dumpster three miles away, you know, three hours later, that's a psychological stop. The energy that guy used to run and hide, he could have used to keep trying to stab you. So with defensive handgun use, most of it's psychological stops. Anyway, that does not mean that you should just carry a, a toy gun and assume that 97% of the time I can show you a toy gun and you're going to run away because I'm a... I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, not a victim sheep animal that you thought I was, whatever the, the now, you know, whatever the, the right. picture meaning is now today. So the idea is that, that, yeah, that could work, but is that the fight you're training for? So like I, and about a decade ago, I wrote a book called counter ambush and it was like counter ambush is our terminology for defensive shooting, because it, it, if you're truly shooting defensively and you're doing the, I'm not going to stupid places. I'm not looking for confrontation. I don't have flashy lights or a shiny badge and I'm not forced to, you know, as a job responsibility to go after the bad guy. Something I missed something like somehow I got, I got ambushed. I got caught off guard. My, my dog didn't bark. My alarm didn't trip. My door wasn't locked. My, wasn't awareness, right. Or, uh, you know, you got caught off guard. That's why you're pulling. Now, if you're pulling your gun out to the ready position, or if you're pulling your jacket back to say, hey, buddy, I, my kid's in the car. I'm not giving you my keys, and I will shoot you if you come any closer with that knife. That's not I need to shoot. So to your point, there's a big difference between I have a, a situation where I'm glad I have my gun and I might need to shoot. So I'm going to get it ready by either you know uh, taking it out from concealment or putting it in my grip or going to my ready position. Any of those things, even in my home, I lock the door, I get the gun out of the quick access safe, I go to the ready position, I call the police. If the bad guy comes through the door, I'm going to shoot him, but I'm not going, I don't have to shoot right now. So I'm not training guys on the range in a live fire class for the situations where you don't have to shoot. We're training for the counter ambush of I just right right now became aware of this situation and I have to shoot. Same Those happen at the same instant. And because they're happening at the same instant, I don't want... I mean, it's one thing to say the tenth of a second, two tenths of a second. You know how much I care, right? About like shooter ready, stand by, buzz, <laughs> something happens. Like that's yeah, not you absolutely it. love it. No, that's so, your favorite so, thing to do in the world. I, no, it's fun, <laughs> but that's not what I care about as a defensive instructor, right? So I don't care what I or you or anybody else can do in that, you know, side-by-side framing on the YouTube of a buzzer goes off and here's with a round in the chamber, here's without a round in the chamber in a completely choreographed, take the best of 10 tries YouTube presentation, right? That's not important to me. What's important to me is the logic of it's more time, but more importantly, it's more energy, it's more effort. 
it, it doesn't require two hands. I can rack off my belt. I get it, except then that's more effort, more time. It's two techniques. But even with two hands, you're introducing variables of potential malfunction and failure, whether it's the sweat on your hands and not having good serrations or missing the gun or partial rack or who knows what it is that you're introducing all this extra variable of failure and effort and energy. The time is almost like the least of my concerns, because if it goes well, you're right. It's only a tenth or two of a second and who cares? But if it doesn't go well, it's, it could literally be the rest of your life, right? Because now mm -hmm. you, you never get into the fight. So it's just, to me, it's just, it's a mindset issue. It's a comfort issue. It's an integrity issue really of I have a gun to protect myself and I'm confident in my ability to use it, but I'm not sure about carrying it around loaded. Like, come on, man, you're not protecting the world from Al Qaeda at Walmart if you can't be comfortable carrying a loaded gun in a proper holster. Right, right. And, you know, the other thing, too, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. I watch YouTube clips. I make YouTube clips, right? I, All that I kind of stuff. Yeah. But I'll say this. Um, some, I think the majority of people will will always hesitate in an emergency situation for the fact that they'll be in. There's a there's a slight state of shock of like, is this shit really going down right now? Like, there's no way this guy's being serious about stabbing me. Like, there's no way he's being serious. Like, there's that denial motion of, like, there's yeah. no way I'm about to – this is actually happening to me right now. There's got to be something going on. And, and you know, working in EMS, like, I got in more fights as an EMT over eight years in Vegas than I did when I was sh uh, when I was a third-degree black belt in Taekwondo. My entire career in Taekwondo, I got in more fights as an EMT, right? right? right. Where I was supposed to be saving people. And the, the first time I got into a fight, the guy almost got the jump on me. Luckily, I had a couple of firefighters and stuff, so I've got backup. But, like, I was in that moment, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what's what's – I'm, like, backing up going, what's going on? Why are you attacking me right, right. instead of being kind of more proactive and, and ready for it and, you know, stuff like that. So I think that's another big thing, too, that people would just um, – they don't Huge. fully take into consideration. Uh, late The late William April, um, we have uh, – yeah, I don't know if you know him, but, but William April, um, April Risk Consulting, we, we lost him a couple years ago. He was the guy, I think, in the community, in our training community, through Personal Defense Network and our series of instructors and stuff, that most put, put his finger on this idea that you can't explain the violence. You shouldn't want to explain the violence. You just need to acknowledge the violence and respond appropriately. So when the guy is coming at you over a parking spot on Christmas Eve at the mall, you can't be like, sure, guy, it's just a park. If he's coming at you with a bat... It's the same as if he was coming at you with a bat because you just stole the last piece of food that his family was going to eat in the aftermath of a nuclear apocalypse because your family needs to eat it. And it makes sense to you that he's going to try to beat you to death for the banana, but you've got to defend the banana. Like, you can't be overthinking it. And and so, to me, that's that's those in-between things, right? So, if somebody, if the guy pulls out an AK-47 at the mall and starts shooting at people, I don't think I'm going to be in like, this doesn't make any sense. Guy, let's talk about right. it. Right. <laughs> right. But, right. But, but if it's a guy with a crowbar in the parking lot, it's like, OK, man, you seriously, you're not going to risk your life in jail to beat me over a parking space. Let's talk it out. No, I've got to go to the gun just like that guy is makes sense to me. Right. Like, And I'm not saying I'm going to shoot him yet, but I'm very well going to the stage position like, dude. Right. So. Right. Then there's then there's the other thing, which is like, you know, you're you're the guy in the uh, and I had a friend this happened to about nine months ago. He actually was supposed to come to a course and called me that morning uh, or the morning before and say, I'm not going to make it. He's in a bar. Robbery starts. And it's kind of like that taco shop one you're talking about where you're sitting there watching this thing play out. There's no the guy's not shooting. There's no immediate danger. But you've got the gun. You, you've thought about it. You've got the training. You've got that mindset and awareness. And there's plenty of time to draw yourself an if then kind of play out map timing when the guy's heads turn. This is when I would draw this. If he does this, then I'm going to shoot. And, and that can be dangerous, too, because then you can start overthinking it or the hesitation or the sweats and the heart rate and all of that starts happening. Um, in some ways, it's almost like the immediate need to shoot. You're going to respond as trained. You're much more likely to just execute the physical skills than you are if you have time to think about it. And, and you probably know this from from, you know, your emergency medical stuff, too. Right. Like if the if the, the thing happens and you're there, and you've got the gear and you've got the training, you respond to the thing. 
as opposed to like maybe in a classroom training environment when the guy's like, what would you do if, and you maybe overthink it. It's like, well, I would do this or would I do that? Or would I do this? Or it depends. Do I have this type of thing or this type of tool? Is my supervisor there? Oh, that guy has more experience with that. I'd let him take it. No, if it's just you and the dying person, you do it. Yeah. And even then, like, like I said, there's also that situational awareness and some of the expertise and, and, um, um, well, I mean, expertise is what I got to call it. Cause like there, yeah. there's sometimes you could have someone like, say, for example, you have someone that's drunk. So they've got slurred speech. They're kind of talking like an idiot and all that kind of stuff. And to, to recognize the difference in a change of like, if they start talking, but now what they're saying isn't making any sense. Whereas before it kind of made sense. And now all of a sudden, maybe the slur just all of a sudden got a little bit worse. And you have to, you can't just look at that person and go, uh, they're just a drunk asshole. Maybe their last shot finally kicked in. You got to look at them and go, is this guy having a stroke? Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. You were drunk, but now we've got another. So you got to be able to recognize those kind of things. And yeah, and that's, you said, like, that's that... the magic word. Yeah. The expert recognizes, whereas somebody who's not as much of an expert has to figure it out. Right. And I right. say like, I use, so I use that as an example. Like if there's a cop in the room, you know, the code section for domestic abuse, you know, the code section for DUI, you know, the form number for a traffic accident just by memory. Like if I say that if there's cops in the room or active patrol guys, they're like, oh yeah. And, but anybody else can pick up their phone and find out what the code section is for domestic violence in their jurisdiction. But it takes, it, you have to do something to figure that out as opposed to the guy who's familiar with it and uses it all the time, that piece of information, they recognize it. So, so recognition is the method of the expert and that's what we try to develop with people on the range. We try, we want, we want you to be an expert at slide lock and emergency reloads. Like you feel slide lock, you do a reload, you're like halfway through the reload and you're not even aware, you're not thinking about it because you just, your body recognized the feeling of slide lock and you started a reload. The guy who says, well, I'm gonna count my rounds and I like to, re I go to cover when I know I only have about half a mag, just shut, just stop, just stop. Just stop. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. How many times have you had to do it? Never? Exactly. Got it. So, well, Rob, I know we were kind of running short on time. So what we're going to do is I got a couple of quick questions. You just quick fire answers. And then that's how we're going to uh, kind of cut it go. Um, so let's start off with the first one, which is uh, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing? Uh, I have <laughs> spelling bureaucracy and I used to not be able to pronounce it because I would just like mumble it trying to spell it in my head. So I'm going to say I overcame that one. That's the one that comes to mind. Got it. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite breakfast food? Bacon. Bacon. Nice. Okay. Um, do you watch a show one episode at a time or do you binge the whole thing at once? I'm a binger. Yeah. When I watch a show, I'm a binger. Okay. Uh, which is more important, physical or mental strength? Mental for sure. Mental. Okay. Uh, do you prefer driving or flying? Driving. Okay. And what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice that's I've a, ever that's received. That's a deep one. That's yeah. Deep don't one. worry. I think so. it's, it's comes down to don't worry about things you can't change. Like don't spend that energy on something you can't affect. Uh, you know, focus on stuff you can do stuff about. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Hey Rob, thank you so much for, uh, for logging on with me and chatting with me. This is absolutely awesome. Uh, again, I, I had a great time talking with you shot. And uh, when, we, when we were talking about ideas about who to bring on for this particular conversation, I was like, I, I know exactly the guy I wanted to chat with, and it was you. So um, thank it. you so much, and, and best of luck with Divinity Arms. I mean, uh, I, I, like I said, I, I got to hold the gun. I got to feel the trigger. I haven't got to shoot one yet, but uh, super excited for, for what, what's coming on, and, uh, and I hope you all the success. So oh, is I there anything else it, you want to add? Or? About the, the Rock Island, I got to get out with that 5.0. And, and uh, if, if we were closer together, we just could meet at the range this afternoon, but we'll uh, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get that squared away. So awesome. Well, hey, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, Rob Pincus, check him out, Ice Training, PDN Network, and Avidity Arms. And uh, I'm John McLean with Rock Island Armory. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next episode.